Hello, I'm Holly Tarquini. Welcome to the F-Rated Podcast. The F is for feminist and that's intersectional feminist. Uh, When I created the F rating in 2014, it was to champion women on screen and behind the camera. So it's awarded to every film which is directed and or written by a woman. And if the film is written by a woman, directed by a woman and stars a woman, then it gets a triple F rating, which is our gold star. In this podcast, we're showcasing remarkable British women who are working in film and have made fantastic films as a way of inspiring the next generation of filmmakers, composers, writers, film critics, film exhibitors, and everyone else. So if you are a woman, if you've met a woman, if you're interested in film, if you've watched a film, if you like film, then listen to this podcast. So today I'm here with my co-host, journalist and broadcaster Anu Anand, so I'm going to introduce her properly in a moment. After this episode, you can hear in the other podcasts from remarkable women in film. So we've got Amara Santi, so she is an amazing director who actually started her career as an actor in Grange Hill. We'll also hear from Nainita Desai, who has won more awards, I think, than anybody else I've ever come across for her compositions of all kinds of films, including for Sama. Uh, we'll hear from Rebecca O'Brien, who started out almost on My Beautiful Laundrette and moved on to produce all of Ken Loach's films and so many more women. But first, I'm going to say hello to Anu. Anu, it's so nice to see you in person. I know, isn't it funny? Here we are in your your lovely study, um, and I'm just looking around at these great pictures of your kids and the artwork, and this is not how we actually met, is it? I know, we met online in lockdown, didn't we? Yeah. Which is very weird, and actually, it took us quite a long time to meet in person. (laughs) It did. It feels like a very long time ago, doesn't it? And I, I imagine that there's a lot of people who started things in lockdown, and so did we, <laughs> i.e. this podcast, but we're finishing it too. And I'm really, I'm really proud of that, actually. The women that we spoke to were fantastic. Yeah. And in a way, I can't quite believe that we got to talk to them all. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like, so, so I'm, I mean, you know, this is a film podcast, so not to be overdramatic or anything, but I feel like the podcast has actually helped me to kind of draw together those things that we know in our bones but find it kind of hard to articulate on a personal level. And that is how sexism, how baked in it is and how much it drives so many things in our lives, really from the time we are young girls. And I imagine that you have that. You've probably been articulating it more than the rest of us. Yeah, I've got so much to say about this. It's (laughs) so huge because I do feel as though being a feminist is a journey of self-development. So I think the whole lifetime of mine, so I'm 52, I think, or 51. I can never remember. I'm I'm going to be 50. Yeah, so I'm 50-something. And my feminist journey has been very much about unpicking all the beliefs that I've held in my life because of the culture that I've been in. So that whole thing of kind of, you don't know the sea that you swim in until you, as that fish get kind of lifted out of the pool and shown it. And I've been lucky enough to come across remarkable feminists and brilliant feminist films, which have allowed me 
to look at myself. But the question that I'm always asking is, what else am I not seeing? What else is mm. in that sea yeah. that I haven't noticed yet? So I think kind of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter really made us, we knew about systemic racism. We knew that we were inherently racist, um, but we didn't really have enough language to articulate it and to really challenge ourselves and how uncomfortable it is to be colonial I'm, I'm mm. a colonial you know my whole background is a colonialist I'm a white middle-class British woman I'm a colonizer <laughs> and so and my ancestors were colonized by yours <laughs> no I mean you know I'm the grandchild of refugees at partition uh economic migrants my parents so yeah yeah. yeah. Um, tell me about your background and history. So I'm, I don't come from films at all. So for me, this has been a real learning curve. But I have spent 20 plus years as a journalist and uh, a presenter for the BBC World Service. I've spent a lot of that time living and working in India. And I've lived and worked a lot in the UK. I married a Brit. Don't ask me why. <laughs> so, you know, again, coming back to that idea of like feminism, sexism, all of those issues and, and how it kind of intersects personally. So in India, obviously, because you have a weaker institutional system, you have weaker law enforcement, you get horrific, violent crimes against women. But what really has also struck me is that coming back to work in the UK in my 40s, my goodness, even in liberal institutions, the sexism that's baked in is kind of like it hits you like like a slap. I've had an editor, female editor, say to me that I was too old for radio people. You cannot even see me. A week later, she said, and yet you have a lot of experience and I've realized that's important too. And you're going, okay, when you've sorted yourself out, come back. I'm not working for you. I've had a male really seasoned, respected U.S. foreign correspondent asked me to come to an interview six months pregnant, knowing I'm six months pregnant. I'm saying, but I'm six months pregnant. And then at the end of the interview saying, and do you intend to be a full-time mother? It was my first child. I had no idea what being a parent meant. And later I realized, you know, like in Canada, that would actually be illegal. You don't ask people what the, you, they don't know. And what does it matter? You know, you've either got to deal with people having lives or not. So I've done a lot of journalism and a lot of reporting from a lot of different places. And I guess in every place I've been, so whether I've covered business, not Buffy, I don't cover Buffy, I don't cover Buffy, but whether I've covered business, whether I've covered poverty, whether I've covered um, politics, society, culture, religion, <sighs> there's a lot of misogyny and sexism built into all of those arenas. And, and I think, Holly, you're probably like me, you get to a stage where as a person, it just accumulates and you feel, you just feel like you're being dragged downwards, you know, and you've got you've to say, what, what am I going to do about it? And I guess the podcast is our response to some of those things, isn't it? Absolutely. And also now we're facing ageism. Like yeah. you said, we're yeah. now 50 and too old, apparently, yeah. to do like, which 50 year old men don't seem to be too old. No. Um, I have so many questions that I'd like to ask you, though. <laughs> I really. But the one that I think uh, I can imagine that if I was listening to this, I'd want to ask is whereabouts in India that uh, your your parents emigrated from? Mm. My both my grandparents, mum's side and dad's side are from northern India. India, although my dad's parents used to live in what is now Pakistan and were displaced by partition. 
Um, my parents had an arranged marriage. I was born in northern India in Jammu, which is a small trading town, um, but emigrated to the U.S. with my parents when I was a year old, but then went back and worked there. So, you know, it's been a really, that's the other thing with films and the thing that with some of our guests, that's such a refreshing joy to explore, which is that no one is a monolith. You know, we are all so complicated. Our lives are, I'm, I'm an Indian American Brit. Can't put that on any form. You know, we're, we're kind of forced to put ourselves in boxes in ways that I just find infuriating. And then I also grew up in the deep south of America. So, you know, I'm not Jumpa Lahiri who grew up in like Northeast Ivy League America. I, I grew up in, you know, such a different cultural context. You know, I spent a few years of my life with my family cleaning rooms in a motel that my dad decided to buy. You know, it, it, there's just no one template. There's no one answer. And that's the other thing I love about this is that we really get a flavor of that. Yeah, yeah and it's really interesting. And I do feel, I've always felt, especially partition, I don't know mm. why, but partition I feel almost kind of personally responsible for and guilty about. And it, I know that guilt is useless. It's no help to anybody at all. But again, I think all of that unpacking of sexism, racism. I was a misogynist when I was a child. I hated women. I didn't want to be them. I didn't want to be like them. I would call myself George. I wanted to be a boy. Wow. And I really, really hated the whole mm. role of women. I hated high heels. I hated very feminine women. I hated lipstick. I really, I was such a misogynist. And I think it was because I didn't, those weren't the role models yeah. that I wanted to be and I didn't really have those role models yeah. and that's also why film is so important to me because I never looked at Ginger Rogers I only looked at Fred mm. I was only interested in the men and the boys because they were the main characters and they were shown to me to be the important ones and actually I hated Ginger Rogers I totally bought the whole mm. narrative that she was difficult of course she was fucking difficult she was dancing backwards in high heels mm. to Fred Astaire's exacting regime Mm. you know and being the sidekick when actually she was more talented and she was never had the name she never had the money you know so yeah. and all of that I've been unpicking for 50 years so so okay so tell me then when you went from six-year-old misogynist <laughs> when did you realize oh dear I am a woman you know when did that moment happened where you went no actually I have to be a feminist and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more I will share with you you know what early films had an impact on me and I agree they taught me to be absolutely misogynistic in two cultures so double the fun but what for you was that turning point I don't know there's not there's not a light bulb moment it happened gradually no I mean I would say Wonder Woman which is quite recent that was a real light bulb moment in that I sobbed the whole way through Wonder Woman because I wished that my seven-year-old self could have watched that film mm. because it would have meant so much to me as a child. Mm. Have you seen this meme on Facebook uh, where there's two hands and one's holding a blue pill, one's holding a red pill, and one, and one pill says, pill A takes you back to when you were six with all the knowledge you have today, and pill B you can have $10 million. <laughs> and I'm really tempted by pill A because I think that if we could go back to our young girl selves and realize that we were being played so massively, 
things might turn out different. Although, you know, I'll take the 10 million as well, but. Yeah. You know where the pills come from, don't you? From, uh, is it from the Matrix? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you know the Matrix was made by two trans women. No, yeah. no. Yeah. See, I learned so much every time I talk to you. No, I didn't know that. So at the time, they were called the Wachowski brothers, but they're now the Wachowski sisters. I didn't know that. Yeah. And there is a whole um, analogy that the Matrix is looking at life before you know you're trans right. and then when you know you're trans. And so, I mean, there's analogies across the everybody has different meanings from the matrix and of course there's the whole kind of is it red pilled or blue pills i get my <laughs> colors mixed <laughs> up with red the pill. yeah um that you are red pilled if you have gone down the path of misogyny and recognizing that feminism has been terrible for all men and all women that women actually want and should be in the kitchen you know mm -hmm. all of that kind of you've been red pilled because you've seen the light mm. um i prefer the trans mm. analogy myself yeah I had no idea that that random meme was going to open up a whole new portal of feminism. That's great. That's great. So so I grew up with both Bollywood, well, that that's what it's called here, you know, Hindi films, where, my God, I can still remember. So there was one whole film in which a woman who cannot conceive a child is demonized and hounded. And when I look back as a woman, you know, who's, who's had children, who's kind of been through that whole journey, I'm even I'm I am I am astonished and appalled and heartbroken that that's what I was watching as a child because I completely internalized the idea that her failure to have children made her useless. And I can think of so many things that I grew up with that were like that. And then on the flip side I grew up in the US, so I grew up with the commercialized, sexualized, commodified version of you know femininity so cheerleaders and you talk about wonder woman i used to rip out pages of um who was the actress linda oh man the, 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 linda yeah, carter. that's it linda carter i wanted to be her she did have my color hair that was one good thing but you know i just knew i could never look like that in every culture there is this streak baked in right at like dna level which says if you are a woman, you need to be this kind of woman or you need to be that kind of woman or whatever. Well, it's only lately reading, do you know Sophie Hagen, who's a fantastic no. comedian? No. So she's brilliant. And she wrote a book called um, Happy Fat mm -hmm. and she's a fat activist. And it's only in the last two months reading that book that I've recognised how um, fat phobic I am. And how I actually do really believe that one of the goals of my life is to be thin mm. and that somehow if I achieve that on my deathbed, I'll get the medal for having not been fat. <laughs> <laughs> for fuck's sake. I want to see that on your headstone. I don't want to see your headstone, but... <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, Holly Tarquini. She managed to not be fat. Right. I mean, what a life goal. And also... Yeah. and but the anger and resentment that I feel for the amount of space that's occupied in my mind, yeah. in my life, yeah. in yeah. my anxiety. Mm. And I don't feel as though any of that is innate. None of that yeah. comes from me. All of that has been handed to me by patriarchy. And mm. and fuck it. And also that's only the latest thing that I've <laughs> spotted. Yeah. Imagine the 60 yeah. other things that I'm going to spot through the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, let's talk about films because I think one of the things that happens in, say, creative or, or public facing industries is we imagine that there is this group of lucky women in the industry somewhere 
golden girls, you know, maybe they're blonde, maybe they're tall, maybe they're skinny. I don't know. You know, they're childless. I don't know what the ideal is, but that somewhere, say in journalism where I've been or film, there's the perfect woman who's having success. And I think one of the things that's really surprised me and has been a real eye opener over the last few years. And when I met you, I'd walked away from a job because all I saw was decimated women. I mean, professionally kind of put in a box, limited women reeling and grieving from having invested decades into something and just not getting to the same place as the men. And it's been really instructive, you know, that even the women who we think have got that success are facing a lot of the same barriers that we are. And they're being judged maybe in different ways, but they're still being judged. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about the film world and, you know, why did you want to make this podcast? Why is it necessary to talk about women in film? I mean, any film you turn on, there is a woman in it, isn't there? So I feel as though the film industry is like America in that um, that great American dream that anybody can be the president, mm -hmm. that all you have to do is be brilliant. And the film industry forever, I think, has been seen as that, that it's a meritocracy. If you're brilliant, you'll rise to the top. And so if there aren't any women at the top, it's because they're not brilliant, yeah. because it should be the best person for the job with no kind of understanding of the fact that we employ in our image because that's comfortable and it's safe and it's not challenging. We don't tend to employ intersectional feminists because intersectional feminists ask all the difficult questions <laughs> <laughs> and and also demand things like Nora Ephron ran a set where you could go home at four or five o'clock because you might have kids and you might need to take care of them. And, and women do most of the unpaid labour. And women do most of the unpaid labour. So the idea that the film world is a meritocracy is pervasive and absolutely untrue. Mm. Uh, the F rating, I came up with it in 2014. It's quite a long time ago yeah. now. Um, which was... <gasps> Buffy. Go away, Buffy. We're talking feminism in films. That's, that's Holly's lovely dog. We may hear Buffy. It's okay. <laughs> that's my needy, insecure dog. Um, so Me Too didn't happen till 2017. Time's Up was 2018. So it was mm. quite a way... Wow before yeah. all of that had happened. Mm. Um, but the F rating and I were in a long line of feminists campaigning for film. Yeah. Um, so there were obviously women in film from day one working incredibly hard when film became expensive and crucially there was lots of money to be made the women were eked out into the edit suite and behind the scenes mm. and in front of the camera still to be <laughs> looked at through the male gaze yeah. but much less as the tellers of the story mm. um, and I should just say really quickly that you, you just stay tuned because one one of the most fascinating episodes that we recorded that that you'll get to hear is with someone who's done a fabulous history of women in Hollywood but yeah continue yeah it's yeah. the Helen O'Hara yeah. podcast and it's and she is magnificent yeah yeah so if you want to know about which women there were at the beginning of film what they were doing how involved yeah. they were how significant they were and how emphatically they were cut out of not just the industry but out of the history of film yeah which is really it's jaw-dropping it's it's the kind of thing that would be an absolute scandal today and you're reading it going how do I not know this and that's why our podcast is so important because what we're doing is championing and shining a light on just a handful of some of the brilliant, brilliant women who have made fantastic mm. films. And actually, I think it's a shame that they're all brilliant 
because mediocre men are they fail upwards so they make a rubbish movie oh well you know maybe he was just having a bad day or you know the script wasn't brilliant so we'll give him another chance whereas women if they make a terrible film women shouldn't direct films they they fail for all women not even just for themselves and they're never given the funding and opportunity to make a feature film again um and so Yes, I would. And let's just, you know, just to say that's not you saying that. The statistics tell us that. Oh, here she comes. She's got her (laughs) statistics. Go on, tell us. So the statistics are horrendous. I I set up the um, F rating in the first place because the top 200 films, 250 films of 2014 Mm -hmm. had, as ever, been 95% directed by men. Wow. And that's not just men. That's straight, white, heterosexual, able-bodied, mm. cisgendered American men, which is a really tiny niche window through which to see the stories which influence influence us the yeah. most. Yeah. Um, and figures have improved. I mean, the amount of campaigning that's going on, that's gone on. And again, this is unpaid. You and I aren't being paid to <laughs> no. do this podcast. No, we are not being paid by anyone. <laughs> and we haven't gone out and sort of, I mean, to be fair, you yeah. know, we haven't no, gone we haven't and got, asked for it, but... we haven't asked anybody for it and we haven't put ads in because we hate ads. <laughs> so, so that's our choice. But as ever, two women yeah. working for nothing yeah. to campaign for the benefit other of women. other women yeah. and also not other not only other women because actually this benefits the majority of men and boys yeah. because actually setting that one example of a hero that can solve everything and do everything and is powerful and strong and not sweet and sensitive that that is a male character that doesn't have any of the qualities that most women want <laughs> that doesn't have any of the qualities that most fathers need mm. is toxic for everybody yeah. so this is good and beneficial to everybody yeah and you know as I'm listening to I'm thinking about all kinds of things I've read recently from Caroline Criado Perez's Invisible Women which talks about the brilliance bias and the default male we've all downloaded that template a doctor is a man a construction worker is a man etc it goes on forever Um, and male qualities are the default qualities but also Laura Bates and everyday sexism where it's the small things in daily life that can kind of add up to the giant train wrecks in society so a lack of empathy at the top, a kind of brutal downward management that is seen as like a successful cutting edge behavior actually ends up creating a toxic mess. You know, it it hurts everyone, whether it's a giant scandal, whether it's a failure to address a societal problem, whether it's a public health disparity or whether it's poor storytelling from only one point of view. One of the things I love, Holly, I mean, really, it's kind of been like a a kind of a intellectual and spiritual tonic for me. You know, it's been like, you know, the pandemic. Oh, I'm so tired of it. And then I watch some of the movies that we've had to watch in order to speak to these people. And I go, oh, wow, they're really good. So that's something I hope that people are going to enjoy, because as we go through and talk to different women, we're going to talk about different films. Um, I mean, I can, you know, recommend a lot of the brilliant films that we've watched. So Misbehavior, uh, was it Rocks? Rocks and Rocks. Suffragettes. Yeah. Yeah, Rocks is so fantastic. Yeah. I love Rocks. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you, just that film alone, if, if you haven't heard of it, you haven't watched it, just to give you a flavor of the treats you are in for, look up Rocks. And Belle. And Belle, yeah, Rocks and Belle, and there are many more, but just look those two up just as a starting point and and have 
have a watch because it's an, an absolute treat. And then, of course, we get to talk to the women that actually were instrumental to making those films. Um, yeah, go on. You, you've got some more statistics. Go on, Holly. <laughs> so I wanted to go back to the numbers. So as I said, in 2014, when I came up with the F rating, fewer than 5% of the top 250 mm. films were directed by women. Um, since then, there's been Me Too. There's been Time's Up. There was Michelle Williams being paid £80 a day, while Mark Wahlberg was paid £84 million. Not a day. Was it? Oh yeah, but but that's her, still her yeah. total was a thousand dollars. She got per diems uh, for pickups, and he got eighty four million. Wow! Which he donated afterwards to Times Up. So it's not it's mm. not him being a bad guy. No, it's it's the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, it's the system. And things have got marginally better. Well, they've got kind of a bit better. Yeah. Um. So there's been a seven percent increase between nineteen ninety eight. And 2022 of F-rated films in the top films. So, did you say seven yes. percent? Yeah, that, that's pretty modest, isn't it? Because don't we make up half the population? <laughs> no, we're more. Oh. So, we're, women in in the UK and in America, we're 51 percent. So there you are. go. We are the majority. Yeah, and I find it so <laughs> weird. We get spoken about in under the term minorities yeah. in the same way that you think has has anybody counted. The number of Asian people there yeah. are in the world at the moment. It's not a minority, people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is an absolute nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Minoritized, yeah. but not a minority, yeah. the majority. Mm. Um, so, yes, things have got fractionally better. And in um, lockdown, it seemed that women were doing really well. Mm. And the reason for that is they were much smaller films. So there's basically a pyramid, that, if you can picture it, of... Um, kind of cheap, cheap films, not cheap, but, you know, not really... Not big budget. Not massive tentpole big budget films at the bottom of the pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid, you've got your tentpole films. And there are fewer of them, obviously, Mm. because they're much more expensive. But with women, you've got quite a lot of women represented in documentary, which is the cheapest, lowest risk. Mm -hmm. And then as you edge upwards to the top of the pyramid, there are Mm -hmm. fewer and fewer. There used to be no women at the top of the pyramid. And now there are. So you've got, you know, your Patty Jenkins and you've got people, women that are directing big budget Marvel movies Mm. and those kinds of films. Um, But there aren't very many of them. Mm. And when you watch the credits, there are very few women outside of um, costume and Mm. makeup. So makeup and costume are still predominantly female and we need to get more blokes in there. But with the rest of them, and they are costume and makeup are probably lower paid than lots of the other sections Mm, mm. which are as ever great more valued because they're done by men Mm -hmm. um in the same way that nurses aren't as valued (laughs) because yeah we're going to hear more about that too and some pretty (laughs) staggering um evidence on it's not that women go into low-paid jobs it's that the jobs start paying less when women take them you heard that correctly but you'll hear more about that when we speak to helen o'hara yeah 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 it's it's absolutely shocking. And so, yes, things are getting fractionally better. Mm. But obviously, you need every um, every layer of the film industry to change because you can't have those directors yeah. 
directing tentpole films if they're not also ADs, assistant directors, mm-hmm. if they're not runners, if they're not. So they need to, you know, ideally, yeah. you don't want your first job to be directing because what yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. you want to work up through the ranks because then you learn the whole process and you learn how to do it. And I always think, you know, you should never really be asking somebody to do something unless you kind of know how to do it and what you're asking yeah. them. Yeah, you're, you're throwing them into a pretty impossible situation. It's kind of setting someone up for failure. No, and we'll hear a lot about that too. You're right that one of some of the conversations we've had is around how do you make opportunities for other women and other people? And, and it's tough because of the way film budgets and the way that the, the kind of hierarchy of it is um, set up and created it's often quite difficult unless you already have a woman in that position where she can make the decision to empower other competent, talented women. You know, it, it's quite an uphill struggle. So that's our podcast. <laughs> I'm so excited about it. Yeah. Um, and, and so tell us who we're going to hear from first. So I, I, I do genuinely love every single person that we've spoken to um our first is going to be Rebecca O'Brien who is are you going to say Ken Loach's producer I'm certainly (laughs) not going to say Ken Loach's producer no go on let's let's introduce her very properly I wasn't yeah Yeah, I wasn't going to say that I know you were so she is yeah a phenomenally experienced producer and actually My Beautiful Laundrette is the thing that she works she wasn't a producer on it she was a production manager but um that for me is the kind of shining light of you know remarkable it was such a seminal film and then yes she has produced all of Ken Loach's significant recent work yeah no and I'm joking there because we we talked to her about that we're like why are you referred to as Ken Loach's producer why isn't he Rebecca O'Brien's director you know there is a kind of funny (laughs) I still stand by that that I think she should be a household. All the yeah. women that we've spoken to should be household, should be household names. Yeah. And I think it's highly likely that the majority of people, they haven't heard of them, but they've heard of their films. Mm. Yeah. And and we will hear some really interesting things from her. She has, you know, she's so possessed of a kind of huge common sense and this incredible work ethic. She's really generous and honest. It's a really enjoyable episode. And she's got her own ideas about why she is or isn't known, um, which are super interesting. And she's great at explaining what a producer does, because I had no idea at all. And and yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and also that, that it's not clear in credits who is the producer. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, definitely listen to that. So Rebecca O'Brien, that's going to be our debut episode and it is really fabulous. So Holly, where can people get in touch with the F rating? So our website is f-rated.org. On Facebook, we're f.rated.org. And on Twitter, we're f underscore underscore rating. Yeah, and please do like and subscribe to our F-rated podcast. We've worked really hard on it and we really think you'll enjoy it. And as Holly mentioned, we're not being paid. We're just being paid in likes and love out there. Thank you so much for listening to this. I'm Anu Anand. And I'm Holly Tarquini. And we look forward to having you along in our secret little world. 